on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. your tolerance but lecture me is there no end to your own hypocrisy your god is power you have no shame your only interest is political gain you hide your eyes and refuse to listen you play your game coming up next america can we talk with your host debbie georgiatos And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thank you for tuning in on this wonderful Thursday, kind of a gray and rainy Thursday here in the great state of Texas, but still a wonderful Thursday. We have a wonderful guest in studio, and this is one of the most tender and yet profound topics facing America. Our guest today, who will, you'll hear, I'll introduce in just a moment, Dr. Miriam Grossman. Uh, she is in, from New York City. She's a psychiatrist, and she has been brave in the world of medicine, the world of psychiatry, in writing what she has learned about in the, in, in the midst of this seeming epidemic or pandemic of transgenderism, or more precisely, a pandemic of people, young people especially, who claim they've discovered they are really misgender, they weren't really, they aren't the gender that their body says they are, they've been taught to believe they can define their own gender. She has a book out, which we're gonna be talking about. It's called Lost in Trans Nation, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. This is the book. I urge you to order it and read it, especially maybe give it out as a Christmas gift to your friends who think that transgenderism is just a real organic movement. This will help them understand really where the movement came from. It's a comprehensive book, and, and as I say, the author is very brave in being willing to challenge what is not just a trend among young people, but even with the, within the industry, the, among psychiatrists, psychologists, and medical doctors, the idea that transgenderism is a real thing, uh, and all that the medical community can do is treat these young people who are suffering with it. So that was a long introduction to say this is a very, very important book and an issue facing America. So please, let's welcome to the show, Dr. Miriam Grossman. First of all, I'm so glad you could come to Texas. Uh, I mean, it's just great to have you here. And we were talking before the show. I think you will find in Texas, there are um, a lot of people concerned about this issue, concerned that maybe it's um, not what you, what uh, people think it is, what it appears to be this organic explosion somehow, you know, something about drinking in the water. It actually has different sources of where this has come from and different uh, ways society should handle it. But before we dive into your book, just briefly tell us about your practice of psychiatry, like how long you've been doing it and what, how it's over the years, what kind of patients has changed, I assume, over the oh, years. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for being here as well. I love Dallas. This is a great <laughs> <Yay>. place. <laughs> I like it here. I think I'll come back. Um, let's see. So, like you said, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, so I'm a medical doctor. Um, an MD, I went to medical school. Um, and uh, I've been practicing, I don't know what it is now, 35, 40 years in psychiatry. Um, seen a lot, obviously. But right now, I'm focused on helping kids who are 
distressed about their bodies being boys or girls and their parents. So that's the kind of therapy that I'm focused on right now. Love that. And, um, you know, we're going to get into, I, I mentioned before we start, I want to talk about um, the, uh, the explosion uh, in the, on this issue in America and stemming from research done by a doctor who's amazingly, his name is Dr. Money, uh, but he did some research early on, which you've described in your book and in our previous interview, as kind of the genesis of this entire uh, movement or pandemic, whatever you want to call it. But if you would, and just take your time describing, because I think it's important to understand before you do, because what people think is all of a sudden this came out of nowhere, and the argument you'll see in social media is probably we've always had this level of transgenderism, this, this gender confusion, and now we're just finally being honest about it and kids can finally open up and say, I'm not really the gender my body says I am. And so it's, it's, we're, it's being pitched as, so we're being understanding, we're, being, we're helping them get through to who they really are. But you have a great introductory story about where this came from, from Dr. Money, so love to have you tell that story. Correct. So it's very important that people understand Dr. Money and his theory and a little bit about him, his personal life, um, because he really, <clears throat> excuse me, he really was the founding father, so to speak, of gender ideology. John Money came up with this idea um, in the 60s that we not only had a biological sex, a physical sex, but we also have a psychological sex, completely separate from the body. And he called that gender. So he came up with this idea that we were dealing with two different um, entities, so to speak, one physical, biological, and one in the mind. Okay, and this really, the reason that I want you to understand Stand this is because it forms the foundation of what's going on now, the belief system that's going on right now that our kids are being taught from a very, very early age. I mean, we have board books for ages zero to, to three or four that say things like, um, you know, when you were born, you couldn't tell people who you were. So the adults took a look and they guessed that you were a boy or a girl, they may have guessed correctly or they may have guessed incorrectly. And so now that you're big enough to talk and tell people who you really are, that's what you need to do. This is being taught to these very, very little kids. And it's being taught in an authoritative way. Okay, like these are facts. This is established. Okay, so who was John Money? He was a very eminent, respected um, psychologist, originally from a, he grew up on a farm in New Zealand. And he came and did his um, PhD at Harvard, where his interest was in hermaphrodites. Hermaphrodites was the old word that we used to use for intersex. <clears throat> intersex is um, a very, it's very a rare condition in which a person is, because of their chromosomes or some medical condition, they have features of both um, male and female reproductive systems. Uh, it's a very rare condition. 
Am I got a gentleman? Rare as in below zero, it's at zero point zero two, something like that. The point zero two percent of births. Okay. Okay. Point zero two. Okay. Yeah. So he had a special interest in those babies that were born with what was called ambiguous genitalia, and what to do with them. You know what? It was it was a crisis. What do you tell the family? What do you tell the parents? What do you what do you tell everybody? You know, because the first question is that a girl or a boy. Sure. That may be changing. I don't know. But in general, that is the first thing that we normally ask. So his PhD was on, on how to clinically manage those babies. Then he went to Johns Hopkins, and he opened up a clinic to help those families who had those children. Now... Um, he came up with this theory that said we are born gender neutral. So aside from a few um, anatomical differences between male and female, that every child, not, not just the intersex kids, but every child is born gender neutral with the potential of eventually identifying as male or female, it all depends on how you're raised, on what your parents tell you, whether you're given dolls or trucks, dresses or pants, um, and that, that gender, psychological sex, is based on that. So it is culturally determined, not biologically determined, culturally. It was a social construct. So if you take a child um, and give them, you know, and, and, and put them in a dress and give them a girl's name and treat them as a girl, then that, John Money said, you can successfully actually raise a boy as a girl. Now, this was a theory, right? It was a theory. How could you prove something like that? Well, what happened was that a family appeared in his clinic. And they were the answer to his prayers because he really, he had no other way of proving his theory. And this is a theory he was very attached to proving. Let me tell you why. John Money himself had what we call now gender dysphoria. He was uncomfortable with his own masculinity. And the reason for that is because he was raised by a violent, alcoholic father who would beat him and his mother. He was a cruel man. He was a monster. John Money, on the other hand, was a delicate kid, a sensitive kid, and one can sort of piece together that this was a family in which the father was probably very disappointed in his, in his delicate son, and the son most likely detested his monster father. And John Money wrote about it in one of his books. He wrote about being uncomfortable with his masculinity, with his vile, uh, his vile sexual organs. So that is what we would call now gender dysphoria. So he came up with this theory that would permit him to distance himself from being like his father. And he could say to himself, 
you know, even though I've got the same anatomy, the same chromosomes, I'm not like that. I'm different. And he really spent his life promoting this theory with everything he got, he, he got, with everything he had, with all his energy. Now, one day, um, this family arrived at his clinic, the Reamer family, and they were a uh, blue-collar couple from Winnipeg, Canada. They had twin boys. This was a young couple. They were 19 or 20 years old. They had twin boys, and during the boy's circumcision, the first boy who went for circumcision, the, uh, the equipment had a malfunction, and the boy's penis was burnt off. Um, the other boy did not go for the circumcision. You can understand that this family, the parents, were devastated. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know, what, what do you do? Now, one day, months after this accident, they saw Dr. John Money on television talking about how not genetics and not anatomy determined your final identity as a boy or a girl. It was how the kid is raised. It was the environment that would determine the kid's identity. And that therefore, a boy could successfully be raised as a girl. And he said this with authority. In a, he was very convincing. He was a PhD. He was an eminent professor. And you know this, these blue-collar parents um, immediately said, this is the answer. They took the twins. They went down to Baltimore to Johns Hopkins. This was in 1967, I believe. And they consulted with John Money. Uh, the, the mother, at, years later, uh, in an interview, she said, we considered John Money like God. He was God to us. We would do whatever he said. Well, what did he say? He said, castrate your son, uh, raise him as a girl, give him a girl's name, put him in dresses, give her dolls, and raise him along with the twin who's going to be raised as a boy. They followed his instructions to the T. And he said, never tell him. You must never tell him that he was born a boy or else the whole thing is not going to work. Um, they had him castrated at the clinic there in Johns Hopkins. They took him home. They gave him the name Brenda and they raised him as a girl. Now, John Money reported the experiment as a complete success starting when the twins were six years old. And he continued year after year to publicize this experiment. They were his most famous patients as a complete success. And so the world was led to believe, and John Money was a famous person, not only within psychology, 
but you know he was he was his work was covered in the New York Times and the you know the Time magazine and I mean at the time he was known to the secular world as well. I shouldn't say secular, but I should say non-scientific world. He became, he was really a, a, a spokesperson, a leader in this field. And so because he continued to report the experiment as success, see the twins were being brought down every year to see him, to see John Money. And he would interview them and interview the parents. And, he, and then he would publish papers and publish books. And the world was led to believe that this child, indeed all of us, must, be, must have been born gender neutral with the potential of being male or female, unrelated to biology. Now, what happened is that when the twins were 14 and Brenda was... Um, Dr. Money was trying to convince Brenda to have a vaginoplasty, to have an operation to um, create a vagina, a, a false vagina. And Brenda was already taking estrogen in order to enter a faux, faux female puberty. Brenda became suicidal because she realized, well, first of all, she had been miserable all these years. She was never happy. She never accepted the female identity. She didn't know what was wrong with her, but she would rip off the dresses. She didn't want to play with the dolls. She preferred her brother's toys. She was extremely masculine in the way that she moved and in her interests. She wanted to be a sanitation worker when she was in first grade. She wanted to be uh, an auto mechanic when she was in eighth grade. And then when she entered puberty, she realized that she is sexually attracted to girls. <clears throat> so Brenda was very, very unhappy child, poorly adjusted, without friends. She did very poorly. She was not thriving, but Dr. Money was reporting that she was flourishing as a girl, that she was doing well. Now, when she became suicidal at the age of 14, her psychiatrist told her parents, you must tell Brenda that she was born a boy. You have to tell her, even though Dr. Money said not to. And they went ahead and they told the twins separately what had happened. And many years later, Brenda said, I immediately felt such intense relief. I understood that I wasn't crazy. I, I really, I was a boy. And so Brenda immediately went back to living as a boy and took the name, not her original name, <clears throat> but took the name David. And Brenda took the name David because he said, he felt his whole life like he had been fighting this monster giant Goliath. So he took the name David. He lived as a boy. Um, he had to have quite a few operations. He, of course, stopped taking estrogen immediately. He had to 
have his breast tissue removed that he had grown because of the estrogen, but he wanted enthusiastically to do all of that because he so much knew that he was a boy. He ended up getting married. He adopted his wife's three children. And I mean, it sounds like there was a good ending, but unfortunately, the ending was tragic. Uh, David committed suicide. His twin brother died of a drug overdose. And this family was forever damaged. Because in addition, <clears throat> in addition to this experiment that Dr. Money had put them through, you see, during their visits, yearly visits to Dr. Money, he had been sexually abusing these boys. Um, of course, the parents didn't realize. So they really went through hell. And when David realized, you see, the story didn't become public knowledge until David, uh, until 20 years later in the late 90s. Because David heard that his story was being, was being uh, reported to the world as a success and that this surgery was being done, little boys who were born with genitalia that were ambiguous or little boys who had had you know, accidents like he did were being raised as girls based on John Money's report that he was an, a success. And that motivated David to come out publicly. And that's when he started to be interviewed. A book was written about him, a fascinating book called As Nature Made Him, um, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl. But bottom line, okay, this is what's so important. Clearly, David was not born gender neutral. Clearly, John Money's theory that there's a psychological sex that is based on how we're raised and not on our biology, clearly, it's not the case. Dave, we know now with the science that we have discovered now, we know that David's body began to be masculinized by testosterone when he was eight weeks post-conception. He was like this big when a lot of women don't even know that they're pregnant yet, at eight weeks, his little tiny body was already being masculinized and the testosterone was traveling all over his body to his brain, to his heart, to his liver, to all of his systems. We know that now, that biology has a massive, significant impact on every system in the body. So bottom line, and I go into this in greater detail in the book, John Money's theory has been categorically shown to be false. I mean, the twin study was supposed to have been his proof of concept, yep. and it failed miserably. The thing is that in the decades, since he started reporting that theory um, and that the experiment was successful, it, 
it became dogma. It entered into psychology. It entered into um, the social sciences. And it just took hold of, of those areas. And so by the time David spoke up in the late 90s, I mean, David's, David's story really hasn't been given the attention it deserves. Instead, we have John Money's ideas about gender uh, becoming the foundation of gender ideology, of today's gender ideology. So the kids that I see in my office, they say to me, well, well yeah, I mean, I have a separate, it's total, I mean, I might have a girl's body, but my, what's in my head overrides that. So really, I'm a, I'm a boy. And my chromosomes don't matter, and my hormones don't matter. All that matters is what's in my head and how I see myself. So I have to now, my patients tell me, I need medication. I need operations that will so-called align my body with my, where I am in my head. And I need to explain to them, but you know, feelings change. <laughs> your biology is your material reality. There's only one reality. That's not going to change. Your feelings, and especially because you're only 13 or 14 or 18 or whatever it may be, those change. And you do not want to harm your body based on feelings that are probably temporary. Thank you for that lengthy, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very serious for that lengthy description because, as I said when I, so we started out, you know, this explosion into American and actually international culture about transgenderism being just this, uh, this tsunami or this pandemic, people think that it must have some other source. As I said earlier, they think maybe this has always been true. We're finally being honest about it. But I like the idea that you took the time to explain this, Dr. Money, because what he did, he not only changed that family, you know, he, and obviously tragic situation, unclear what would have been the right thing to do because it was a tragic situation, but his thinking contorted, it seems, the entire industry of psychiatry, psychology, and medicine. And that's the kind of one of the first things I want to try to get to is, how is it? Because it's, you know, and, and honestly, many doctors are now saying it, there is, there is one reality, your, your uh, gender, your sex is determined during, uh, at conception, during the, your, while you're still in the womb, you're, you're, you're be developing into a boy or a girl. This has been known medical fact for, uh, you know, like millennia. And of so course. how is it that this preposterous theory that failed when Dr. Money's experiment failed, but how did it get such a, such a stranglehold on psychiatry and psychology that is you're considered controversial because you say it isn't true. How does that happen? Another very important thing for people to understand that I go into in my book. Basically, and very tragically and horribly, um, many of our esteemed medical associations have been captured. Um, I think people are more aware of this now since COVID, 
that medicine has been politicized. So it's also been politicized in this area. And for example, um, you have the endocrine society, endocrinologists, of course, the doctors who treat hor hormonal uh, uh, disorders and write prescriptions for hormones. So these would be the doctors who prescribe puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Now, the endocrine society came out with guidelines for transgender identifying kids in 2017. And those guidelines basically say, yeah, I mean, this is, this is what you do. You have kids that are identifying as the opposite sex. Basically, we have to put them in the driver's seat because they know best who they are. And we've got to give them these hormones. And later on, well, they don't talk about the surgeries because they're endocrinologists. So let's just talk about the, you know, the blockers and cross-sex hormones. And they published guidelines in 2017 that if you look at them, and I couldn't believe this in 2017 when I saw this, you look at the guidelines and they have a rating system for the quality of the evidence. So they make a, a suggestion for, to their doctors. For example, um, the time to begin puberty blockers in kids who are transgender identified is when puberty begins. So that's early. Okay, puberty can begin when you're eight in some cases. So it says, this is what we're advising you to do. But then you go to their uh, ranking of the quality of the evidence that's behind that suggestion. And lo and behold, it's very low. No, no, it's low. I'm sorry. There's another one that's very low. It's low evidence. Then you go to some of the other suggestions that they make about, about cross-sex hormones and you know, how often do we have to see these kids? Should we see them every month, every three months, every six months? You know, this is uncharted territory, so to speak. And so they give the doctors advice on that. And then you look at the evidence. And again, it's low. And then others are not only low, they're very low evidence. Now, listen, we're starting off with physically healthy kids. They're physically healthy. And then we are giving them these interventions that are going to permanently disfigure them. I mean, the blockers we once thought are completely reversible. They are not completely reversible. And they can cause osteoporosis. And they can impact fertility later on. So we're talking about very serious interventions on physically healthy kids. Now, shouldn't we have not only gold level uh, evidence, but we should have platinum. Before we do that, we should have the best evidence in the world before we step in and do that. And yet we have low and very low evidence. How did it happen? I'm getting to your question. Okay. <laughs> it happens because small numbers of activists who are very vocal and very aggressive, um, they take over the committees in these uh, professional organizations that are making the policy decisions. And they go in 
and these decisions are made, and when other doctors try to object and say, well, hold it, we have to look, I mean, let, just a minute here, they are told, this is how we're doing it. We don't mm -hmm. want to hear, we're not debating this, this is how we're doing it. And this is true in the Endocrine Society, in the American Academy of Pediatrics, and in other groups. This is how it happens. That phenomenon you're describing, that happens outside of medicine as well. The, real, the activists who have an agenda set and they get on the right committees, it happens in a wide arenas of a politics. And it is the activists and the, uh, the ones determined with a mission, with a goal, and they will not be stopped. And then others get silenced and others are afraid to speak up because someone has posited this is truth. It happens on climate change, a whole bunch of other issues. I want to go back to how this could happen in medicine. And in particular, the case you talked about, Dr. Lisa Littman, who is at Brown University, and she had the audacity to report that what she observed in the community where she was, was that there were young people deciding themselves, designating themselves as transgender in droves. I mean, kids who were just, they all hung around together. They all woke up one day and said, you know, we're a bunch of girlfriends, we're all guys now. I mean, it was a, it was a phenomenon of psychological yeah. contagion. I mean, that's not the right term, but they talked each other into it. So first talk about that. And then also what happened to her when she tried to report that? Yeah. So Lisa Lippman, um, a professor at Brown University um, and a a doctor of public health as well. She noticed that in her community um, in Rhode Island, suddenly there were, like Debbie said, groups of mostly girls that out of the blue, without any previous history, this is important, because there are kids who from a very, very early age have gender dysphoria, but this is different. Um, they were adolescents and they had always been okay being girls. And then suddenly a whole bunch of them, and they knew each other, okay, would, would announce that they are boys. And so being a doctor and being, you know, a, a doctor of public health, she realized this is something new. What, what, what is going on here? And so she, what she did is she did a survey of parents online. This was years ago, this is back in 2017, 2018, when you know, there, there was this tsunami, this um, epidemic had already started, but it wasn't really being noticed in medicine or being studied yet. So she was one of the first people to really look at it. And she surveyed something like 250 parents of these kids who out of the blue made this announcement of being the opposite sex. I mean, kids who just, you know, months earlier, you know, girls who were fine, like going to the prom and, you know, seductive dresses <laughs> and like into their makeup and all of that. And all of a sudden they were, you know, covering up their bodies and wearing hoodies and saying they were boys. So she surveyed these parents and came up with really astonishing information. You have it right there. I, I do, actually, because I thought it was rather amazing. Prior to their gender distress, a large majority suffered psychologically. Nearly two-thirds had at least one mental health disorder or neurodevelopmental disability. Over two-thirds suffered from social anxiety, and well over half had poor or extremely poor ability to handle negative emotions productively. 
basically these are kids going through the challenging years all of us went through in junior high school and high school you're insecure and maybe you didn't in most of us our lives it wasn't given a name by our parents we just went through stresses and challenges and concerns about how our appearance our appearance was or, or whether we were acceptable or whatever the terminology you'd use but this was used and this is what I want to get around to the malicious nature of what you're describing this is being seized upon by people who use this as a means to convince people, young people to believe they, they have a transgender problem, they have a gender ideology problem, to push gender transitioning, because then they're preying on the weakness yes. of, of normal human beings. Yes, it's presented as a solution to these kids. Yes. So if, for example, guidance counselors might, you know, you, I've ha I had a patient who went to her guidance counselor in sixth grade. She was a girl. She's, she's a girl on the autism spectrum, very socially awkward, troublemaking friends, had sensory issues, unhappy with her changing body, unhappy with the idea of getting a period. She, she went to her guidance counselor, and her guidance counselor actually said, have you considered you, know, you might be a boy? And that's where she first heard of it. And she didn't get fired, that counselor oh, either. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Boot it out of there. Go ahead. No, so this child... This girl is now convinced that she is a boy. And she wants very, very much for the world to see her as a boy. So it's presented, just getting back to Lisa Lippman's study, that she was the first to document that a majority of these kids um, had mental health issues, some of them very serious mental health issues, and uh, that they belong to the same friend group. Okay, yeah. so for example, so it's, it's called a social contagion. A social contagion is when um, beliefs or, or behaviors or feelings spread within a group of friends, and they can be online friends as well. And so we can have benign social contagions like, you know, hairstyles. Fashion, or yeah. Fashion, yeah. And then we can have more dangerous ones like eating disorders or suicidality, self-harm. Um, and we know that there's social contagion with all those things. And so Lisa Lippman suggested, and there was a lot more that she came up with as well, she said, this looks like a social contagion. Now, um, the gender uh, establishment didn't like that because they're arguing that this is inborn that this is something that people are born with, that it's almost, they say it's a biological thing, and we have to honor it, and like I said, put the kid in the driver's seat, and how dare you question this? How dare you say that this has to do with friend groups or mental health issues or anything of the sort? And she was really pilloried yeah. when that came out. Part of you, this, in this chapter, this, uh, this chapter's on Rosa, but um, you talked about here too, how the, um, the, ac the determination, the, the uh, just going to make this real thing to the point that kids were coaching each other when you go to the doctor to get them to agree that you're, you have a real gender uh, identity problem, they were giving them coaching, what to say, what not to yes. say, read these things. I mean, these kids, they got on board with like, like, you know, like you love them to be, get on board to become a really good athlete and you know, here's what you do to work out. They're talking about how, what coaching. you do. They're being Coaching groomed. each They're other. They're being coached. To, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
And that's why I have an appendix in the book on how to get control of your kids' internet use. You just, that's mandatory. Yeah. You know, because the internet is filled with these individuals who are coaching the kids and they're telling them what they need to say when they go into the gender therapist. So they say, you know, you, so for example, you need to say, oh, I felt like this for a long time. I, I just never felt comfortable telling anybody. I've always felt like a boy. I just was afraid to tell my parents. So they're rewriting their histories. And you know, you probably, I don't know if you wanted to get into this, but what this does to parents, yeah, I do erasing the history. The children are erasing the family history. They'll say, like the parent will say, oh, but you know, what about that birthday party when you were 10 and you wore like a princess dress and makeup and you were so happy? And the girl says, no, I, was, I wasn't really happy. I was acting. You know, that wasn't me. I hated that birthday party. And so it's rewriting the family history. It's devastating. It's devastating to the family. Um, you know, uh, there are so many things we could do, and I'm trying to keep a, um, a little eye on the time so maybe people can ask some questions, but uh, you cover many, many aspects of this situation here. And I, uh, the one I'm most fascinated about, I guess we covered enough, but it just seems like there should be more common sense Doctors like you, psychiatrists, psychologists, just medical doctors, endocrinologists, whoever all these groups are, that would be brave enough to say, whoa, get off this train, you know, stop this train, this is crazy. And so you've been outspoken and very brave. And you mentioned earlier, I'd love if you'd share more about it. You do hear from other doctors going along with this transgender lunacy, but kind of not really happy with it, contacting yeah, you. Yeah, for sure. I also want to mention an incredible organization called DoNoHarm.org. Um, DoNoHarm.org, doctors who are getting together and fighting the gender identity politics and other th dangerous things happening in medicine. But yeah, I do get a lot of emails from therapists um, and psychiatrists, pediatricians, and most recently, actually, surgeons as well, saying that I agree with you. This is out of control. This is terrible. Um, but I can't lose my job. Yeah. So that's where we're at. But more and more people, I think, are, are speaking out. Well, especially the stories that come out, and you had, you, in fact, you dedicate the book to the parents who are a little bit willing to speak up, um, and, and, well, I can't read them all, but I mean, the parents willing to speak up, talk to you honestly about how, the other thing happens with parents, I would assume, is they get frightened into silence, if they're, especially if they're threatened, loss of their child. The school says, if you don't go along, if the state of, I think it's Oregon and Washington State, both have something saying, if you don't go along yeah. with your child's transgender uh, fantasies, yeah. you might lose your child. That's right. So parents just surrender. Debbie, this is the most horrific nightmare that these parents have ever gone through. And I have taken upon myself, you know, a lot of the parents, most of the parents want to stay anonymous. Yeah. They don't want their kid to know that they're speaking out or they're worried about their jobs. But I did a survey of parents for my book um, and 500 parents responded from 17 different countries. And 
like you said, Debbie, I, I dedicate the book to the parents. Um, it's impossible. What They're trying to hold on to their child, but you see their child isn't living in reality. So they're not going to deny reality to hold on to their child, but they can't lose their child. Some of them do. Some of them do lose their children. Yeah. Well, the, the compounding factor among many is what happens in schools, that the school is just taking the tack that says if a child says they are X, that's our starting point. Whatever they say, we go with what they say, along with a medical and psychiatrist, psychologist, doctors, all going down that path. And the parent is kind of alone saying, no, I actually know my child. Correct. She's been a girl her whole life. There's, there's something wrong here. This child does need help but not help in form of transition. But you know, I want people to know that it's not all bleak. There's so much that parents can do to protect their families. That's why I wrote the book. There's so much that can be done. You, just, you, you, know, you need to get educated, know what's going on in the schools, know what's going on in the courts, know that your pediatrician may be under the influence of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Pick your pediatrician carefully. Um, I want to mention the American College of Pediatricians, which is a separate group from the American Academy of Pediatricians, American College of Pediatricians. They are on the correct, the true side of this issue. And they actually, you can contact them and they have listings of pediatricians there. So in any case, um, yeah, parents have to know what's going on. I don't, you know, you might have just given birth. It's never too early. Know what this is all about. Understand John Money, understand the theory, understand the science. And you can, I believe, inoculate your children against this. I truly believe that. I, I would think many, in fact, among other reasons that parents are pulling their kids out of public schools is this issue. Because if you get the slightest concern about your child, or even if you don't, even if your child's happy and healthy, well-adjusted, people will say, I'm, I'm going to keep him that way or her that way. I'm going to pull him out of school. I mean, it just seems like the schools at some point uh, would be willing to recognize they can't keep pushing this or indulging this because kids will leave, families will leave. And, um, and I mean, I also just, and I, I'm shocked more of these adults can't see they're harming the child by humoring this. And you made that point in the beginning. You're harming the child by affirming something with them and, and playing the pretend with them that isn't true. Well, they're convinced that they're saving the child. Yeah, but they're, they're not. Well, now, I mean, we won't have time, but the whole suicide myth, the yeah. mantra, transition or suicide, affirm or suicide, that's what these adults are so scared of. But we don't have the evidence that there's massive suicide rates among these kids. Okay, we are going to turn to have questions from the audience in just a minute. I want to mention one other thing. I mentioned before we started, and um, I, I'm sure there are many sites like this, but someone sent me this um, just before we came on today. Uh, there was a write-up in AND Magazine. I, I've mentioned AND Magazine. It's a great online. It's actually a Substack. Uh, Sam Favis is a friend and writes uh, wonderful stuff. But he's talking about a new app called Kooth, K-O-O-T-H. And kids get into it because what Kooth does, it, it claims itself to be an online mental health platform focused on the well-being of children. Well, yay, who would be against that? Except it is essentially, it starts out at the very beginning uh, asking your gender. There are four choices. Um, you can be male, female, age, gender, or gender fluid. And then you're down that path. 
And these are influences parents don't even see. They, I mean, their child could be reading this at school or in their room on the weekend, and all of a sudden the kids are learning things the parents would yeah. never have taught them. So you said you talked about the idea in here about you've got to get an online strategy to control what your kids are seeing. Oh, mandatory, yeah. I had an IT person write this appendix for my book. Um, I also have other appendices written by lawyers and other people, but the one by the IT person is solely about getting control. You have to know where your kid is going online. You have to know if they have this app. You know, who are they listening to on YouTube? Who are they following? Who are they talking to on Discord and Reddit? I'm telling you, the world is just full of people that are eagerly waiting to influence your child in a, in a dangerous way. And I have to ask you, doesn't money play, I'd love to talk to this brief about money. Money plays, in fact, I meant to have it for today. I saw a chart that had the United States of America and it had like a, you know, yellow dots or something where there were clinics where children could seek gender transition care, whether it's just, um, you know, uh, medications or surgery. And then it, whatever it was, 20 or 30 years ago versus now. And the number of clinics has exploded in this country. And I know the argument that someone, an advocate for a transgender ideology would say, yes, because we're finally taking care of these children. We are giving them the care they need. This is a good news. But from your perspective and mine, and I think everyone's sane, it is feeding, enabling, legitimizing the entire transgender movement. Well, there are extremely rare individuals. I'm not talking about the intersex now. I'm talking about the extremely rare individuals like the Jazz Jenning in the, of the world, if you know who Jazz is, from a very, very early age, age two or three years old, is insisting that they're the opposite sex. That is completely different than what's happening right now. We have a completely different population right now. So in terms of the number of clinics, um, 20 years ago, there were exactly three clinics to help the families with these little kids three clinics in the whole world, okay? It was um, Amsterdam, um, Amsterdam, oh, four, four. Amsterdam, London, Toronto, and Boston. Four clinics, and now, I, I don't know how many there are. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, we, it's hard to know because you see, because in this country, we can have doctors in their private offices just doing what they do. And so it won't show up necessarily on some kind of a, you know, data. Um, but all those, that explosion of clinics, that's for this new population, this, this, you know, tidal wave of new kids who weren't from a very, very early age feeling some sort of internal disconnect. And we don't know why that happens. They're getting it from their friends, they're getting it from their guidance counselor, they're getting it from social media. And it's, it's very cool now, it's the in thing. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a way to, um, well this is another subject, it's a way to not be a white middle class oppressor. Yes, yes, exactly, yep. Exactly. Yeah, it gives them a status almost. You know, you think from whatever era in the past, you might have thought these kids would be to speak up at all. They, the 
few that were genuinely suffering some, from some issue, uh, they'd be rebuked, they would be isolated, they'd be shunned. But this is almost like the, joining the cool crowd. I, I, oh, yeah, I'm, oh, I'm yes, transiting yes. your it's astonishing. And so to, to fix this, I mean, attentive to what your kids do on social media, um, attentive to what they're saying about themselves, attentive to their friends, attentive to what the school's teaching. And this is the parent's job and what else? Absolutely. Can... And I would say vigilant, more than attentive, <laughs> vigilant. Um, you have to know who your kid's talking to, you know, who their friends are, um, what they're doing when they go to their friends' homes as much as possible what they're being exposed to, uh, that's just the world we live in. And finding the doctors you mentioned a moment ago, there are doctors, and you had a great point here several times, most doctors, if you have a case, something they know a lot about, they've you know, dealt with stomach flu, whatever it was, they know what to do, but in these kind of issues, they don't know, they don't feel like they're experts, and so they're gonna to turn to the alleged experts, which are really just the, the modern versions of Dr. Money. They're, they're the people who bought onto this, and so they, they believe in it, and so, when doctors are presented with this, they're going to go ahead and do what the American uh, Association of Psych whatever it's called, Psychiatrists yeah. says, because they don't really have the expertise themselves. So to get a list of doctors from the website you just said, uh, do American, no harm. Col American College of Pediatricians. And also on my website, I have a lot, a lot of resources, miriamgrossmanmd.com. I will also say on a positive note that we're having more and more lawsuits that are brought against the therapists and against the doctors by people who have been through this affirming process and realize that they regret it. And you have right here in Dallas, um, Jordan Campbell's law firm that he opened just about a year ago, specifically three or four lawyers, specifically to bring these uh, lawsuits of the detransitioners against uh, medical and health professionals. Oh, that is so good, so good. Okay, my very fine friends, we have a microphone over here. If you have a question, you can raise your hand and just talk right into the microphone and try to keep your question short. So there you go. Okay, okay. well, thank you very much. Incredible information and I applaud you. Um, I'm, we, we read about young boys who have been, um, molested by uh, the, the clergy and um, priests and uh, now with the children who've been sexually abused in Gaza um, and the, the ones that are being released and having to view the horrors of sexually abused parents. Are these kids salvageable? You know, I'm gonna say yes. And the reason that I'm gonna say that is because we know that after the Holocaust, so many people, and I don't mean just, I mean, there's been a few Holocausts. There's been, I mean, many nations that have had atrocities inflicted on them. But we do see that there's a resilience that many people have. Now, I thought when you started your question that you were gonna ask about the 
relationship between being sexually abused and being transgender because there is a relationship. Mm -hmm. For example, um, it's not uncommon for a girl who's been molested to then think, well, I don't want to grow up to be a woman. I want to grow up to be the strong man, you know, who that's never going to happen. I'm not going to be a victim again. I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to be a girl. I don't want to be a woman. Look at what happened to me. So I thought that was what you were going to ask about. But look, I mean, yes, there's, there's permanent damage that happens from the kind of things that you're talking about. I know that in Israel, there is an intense effort that started almost immediately to organize uh, mental health support for the victims, not only the abducted victims, but the victims who witnessed things and basically for a good part of the country. But um, that, that has been a priority. And so, and these kids and adults that are being brought out of Gaza right now, immediately getting an evaluation by experienced, although there, there is no experience with such a horrific thing to this degree of what's happening. I mean, two-year-olds, four-year-olds being abducted, you know, witnessing their parents' murders and then being abducted and then being shown videos of their parents. It's, it, you can't, it's unspeakable. So we really have never dealt with this before in mental health, but they are doing their best to, to put together the kind of treatments that are necessary for these people. So while it's so very impossibly difficult to absorb all of this, I'm hopeful that, that, that people overall will be resilient. body of work. I was at your talk last night. I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with you. Um, I loved your book. I spoke to the DISD school board meeting about it, but I only get three minutes. So I want you to tell me for the next meeting what I can do with those three minutes. Which, which what, what should I bring up? How, no, my how deranged the parents are that are taking their kids to these? No. Okay. No, I, I wouldn't. Do that. <laughs> the parents are doing their best. They're misinformed. Oh, for They're sure. They're terribly misinformed. For sure. I mean, if you're talking about the transgender thing. Yeah. It. Your question no, made no, me no. think. No, no, I was talking about the. Um, the. Uh, the uh, books. Well, that. But I was also talking about parents. Um, on maybe unrecovered sexual abuse, they're taking them to the. Uh, the shows. Oh, you mean the... Um, yeah, the trans okay. show. Okay. Yes. Uh, but uh, I, I get three minutes at the school board. What topic, what, how can I narrow okay. it? Okay. What I would say to you first is that when you speak, it's not... I mean, of course, the information that you give is important, mm -hmm. but it's also your emotional realness that's important. Now, I testified in the House of Representatives. It's, you can watch, it's on my website. And I had five minutes. 
And that was pretty tough, five minutes. Three minutes is even harder. I mean, I think that you can pull some very powerful statistics about um, the, the, the amount of regret the, the, the people that are standing up now and saying, why was this ever done to me? This was wrong. This should never have been done to me. You can mention that the very basis for so-called gender-affirming care is actually one, you read my book, you'll, you'll see. It's one small study from, from Holland, yeah. It was a poor study. It was a tiny study, and the people are not doing so well after 20, 25 years. Um, you can talk about how we are, um, how, how, can a, how can a teenager, let alone a child, even a young adult, make a decision about their fertility, make a sign on the dotted line that, yeah, they're okay with never having biological children. It's just insane. They can't. We're not letting them get tattoos without their parents' permission because tattoos are permanent. Well, the effects of these interventions are permanent and much greater than a tattoo. So there actually is a lot that you can say. And don't try to fit too much in. Like pick three or four really strong points, and I think you'll do great. <laughs> well, Dr. Grossman, I'm going to tell you, on the subject of having to pick the important points, I, I feel like I'm sitting here, our time is up, and I'm thinking, I didn't get to this story, this story, <laughs> this story. And I, I love that your book tells stories, because I think it's just if it's just scientific data and studies and bullet points, you know, it, it get, you get lost. But when you can picture these people, these actual American, I mean, whatever, nationality, but these, these are human beings whose yeah. lives are forever altered, whose families are forever damaged and harmed. I mean, the, the concept that our overall, the medical world in America is pretty much on board. They still seem to be on board, even though you're right that there are more cases coming out in the public, more awareness about the harm as young, as young people went through gender transition and they're now old enough to realize it was a big mistake. So those stories are coming out. But um, it, anyway, many, many wonderful stories. They're very, they're very eye-opening. Um, and honestly, your work is very brave. I really commend you because you're speaking. And I, I know in, just for us, let alone, and we're not in the medical world, we're not doctors, but, you know, when you even challenge gender ideology in, in public conversation, in public school, there are a lot of people, well, what do you know? How, how could, why would you think that's okay to challenge? So you're really, really brave, and I commend you for that. Um, we are past time, but I want to ask, again, your website for people to read your work is Dr. Miriam Grossman. No, it's just miriamgrossmanmd.com. MiriamGrossmanMD.com. Again, for everyone listening, I will show you the book we are reading. Uh, I'm urging you to read Lost in Transnation, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. This is it. Great book, brave book, and uh, just vital for today's time. Oh, and I'll just add something. Thank you for all those kind words. Um, it's also available on audio, so a lot of people don't want to sit down and read a 300-page book. And I did the narration for the audio. 
I wasn't going to do it, but everyone like on Twitter was telling me I should do it. And it was really, really fun. So you can get the audio if you don't like to read a book. Love that. Okay. Dr. Miriam Grossman, thank you so very much for coming in. Thank, thank you. you for being here. For our next Thursday show next week, we have Linda McMahon joining us. She is the CEO of the America First Policy Institute, AFPI. She worked in the Trump administration. She is now the head of AFPI, America First Policy Institute. They're working very hard to get policies in place. So when we have a Republican administration back in charge uh, in 2024, they hope they have policies ready. They have uh, executive orders ready to go. They have personnel lined up. They are working to, make America, to, to be ready for a transition to hopefully a more a different government in America. So Linda McMahon, she's a rock star. She'll be here next week. And as I say every week in ending this show, I thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Every interview I've ever done is available at americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org. You can go there, you can read our hear our interviews, read our blogs, uh, read what we have to say about a lot of things. Um, and I thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk. I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you America, can we talk truth about America? Can you hear